Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. Hello, hello, hello. What up, though? Welcome to the History of Being Black podcast. I'm Jay Hall, and I am here with a special guest, Dr. Rochelle M. Bratney. And I got her name right because we were talking about it off mic, and I can tell because she definitely would have corrected me by now, who is, quote, a devoted public servant with more than 37 years of progressive leadership, of which 20 years were at the executive level. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you for asking and thank you for having me. Not a problem. I just want to say that that is a hell of an intro sentence to still to stand behind. When you when you hear that said back to you, what 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 goes on in your mind? So when I when I think about these introductions and typically you know mm. we we talk about who's the first or the only or the other in the room and um you know, it's, it's actually humbling and still frightening at the exact same time to think that I've been doing this work um, for close to 40 years now. Yeah, I, thank you for that honest answer, because I got to say, if someone called me that, what I just said to you, I would be frightened. Like that, that's like something I think about when I go back home to Detroit after, you know, when I visit and, uh, you know, I went away to college, you know, the story. Right. And when I go back home to friends who knew me for a certain amount of time, they're going by what they see on social media and what I do. So they hold me to like this standard of like knowing everything. Like I can't be human and, and don't have an answer or an opinion for everything. Right. And that's just in that little couch circle of about four or five, six people versus you are carrying a career and wearing that title. I can't even begin to imagine, do you have times where it feels like people aren't looking at your basic humanity? They're expecting you to be like this robot of upholding this? So first of all, um, I'll be in Detroit next month for a conference, but um, all of these accolades hold no sway with my family. Let's be completely <laughs> honest. Um, there's no Dr. Brackney. There's no Chief Brackney. You know, um, there's some nicknames that I probably can't put on the air, but, you know, they they hold no sway. They don't care about what I, quote unquote, have accomplished or what has gone on over the last 40 years. What they do um, care about um, and what they do often reflect on is the fact that we come from these beginnings that are just poor and, you know, violent communities that we come out of and that we somehow have made it um, to this this space. Um, and you're right, this small group of my friends and my, my circle, they'll normally see me on TV, you know, you've got the the hairs done, you know, nails done, lips done. And normally they're followed by like, Shell's just so stupid. Y'all really just don't know her, right? So it is a lot to carry around with you because not only when you go back home and they know you from you know, back with the things you did when you were young or what they thought you would be or would become and what they see now. But it's also they're trying to manage how they believe the world sees you. Um, and then how does that resonate back in your home space or your home spot? You know, uh, when you do go back, much like when I go back to Pittsburgh. Yeah, I wanted to get into that because I saw that you were from Pittsburgh. And, you know, what I love about people from Pittsburgh is like us from Detroit. You both say pop. So hello to you. <laughs> we all had that pop versus soda argument in college, you know, when you move away. 
Um, so, you know, I just want to have a little moment between us just for a quick second. That's all. <laughs> well, when, when I'm trying to be bougie, right, I do go solo on them. Um, you know, I go solo on them, you know, and I, I, I go um, rubber band versus gum band, which is that Midwestern <laughs> kind of thing. Um, you know, I do go that if I, if I need to, depending on how I have to read the room. So, yes, we do say, you know, pop. We're not soda folk. Um, yeah. Or, you know. Yeah, I, I graduated where I just say Coke, Sprite. I, I got I got exhausted by it, you know, so it's just drink, a soda, I mean, um, Sprite. I just say the, the, label, the, the, the label of it because I, I just got tired of that pause, you know, because one of the things about even how foolish that argument can be for me is that I'm aware, I've always been aware that there's people who say soda. I've always been aware. So when I hear it, I don't have this shock value. But there's something about when you say pop, no matter how grown you may be, there's people who are going to come from the other side of the bar, <laughs> restaurant. Did you just say pop? And you're like, this is, what is this? I don't, I don't yeah. get it. Yeah, just to be I, part I of the conversation. It. Like, I'm cool with this. It is not that deep, right? Just give me something fizzy and sweet right at this point, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell, I mean, growing up in Pittsburgh for yourself, it's always, I've always felt like Pittsburgh was a very distinct town. It has like a signature when you're there. It's one of those times I feel like when I'm there, I know I'm there from the moment my feet touch the soil. That experience for you growing up, your earliest memories were what? So, you know, um, Pittsburgh is one of those places, you know, I love my hometown, right? We're diehard Steelers fan. We don't even call it with two E's. We make it an I, Steelers, right? We're diehard Steelers fans. It is a blue-collar Midwestern town in all of its glory. And what does that bring with it? It brings with it, you know, blue-collar kind of politics, um, old-school machine politics. And so my earliest memories growing up um, actually aren't always the fondest. You know, um, I grew up, I am mixed race. Um, I identify as Black. Uh, my dad, Italian and German, and... My mother, African-American and Native American, like 23 of me, Native American, not we all got Indian Native American. So, <laughs> so, you know, I grew up, I'm a 60s baby. So during the civil rights era, I grew up um, with a paternal grandmother who did not refer to any of us by our names, um, disowned my father for um, marrying a black woman and legitimizing her and having these kids, you know, these these babies with her. Um, I grew up, you know, my first memories, I grew up in this neighborhood, um, Homewood, where John Edgar Wideman is from, right? We're both from this very violent neighborhood um, that's 1.1 square miles, about 3,000 people in that neighborhood, and half of all the homicides in the city of Pittsburgh typically occur in that neighborhood. So just oh, wow. let that resonate with you with a city of about 350,000 individuals. And, you know, we grew up and we went to, to Catholic schools. Um, and I remember the thing about being in those neighborhoods is my earliest memories is escaping through books and reading. Um, my dad had a sixth grade education. He dropped out of school to work in the steel mills. And my mother has a GED. Um, now, I'm going to just tell you this. That black woman says she has a GED, and I'm a believer because um, you do not question an 80-year-old black mama. It's as simple as that. So, But my earliest memories were one of often conflict um, and feeling very torn and, and displaced um, at a very, very early age. What is some of your memories of law 
like law enforcement. So but you're naming a very distinct era, like time that you were born in, and you're already coming in mixed race background. So when you think about the law in Pittsburgh, what's one of your first memories? So the law in Pittsburgh is and um, was and still is a very difficult place um, internally to navigate as well as externally when you engage. Um, I started, I had just turned 21 years old when I started in policing. Um, don't start adding up and doing any math because I saw you put your head down. Um, <laughs> That's not why I have my head down. <laughs> but it's okay. Go ahead. You the law. <laughs> I started at 21 and we were still in this affirmative action mandates under the city of Pittsburgh where they had failed to consider qualified candidates, particularly women and people of color. Um, so when I first start, um, I'm met with a lot of hostility, particularly by white men, which was interesting enough um, because, you know, they were talking about we were affirmative action hires, but the majority of them got 10 or um, 15 extra points on civil service because they were part of the military, right? So you got these additional bonuses for that kind of thing, but um, there was often this looking down on that you were lowering the scores of qualified individuals because they were black or women. You know, I only, I'm five foot seven, typically weighing about 130 something pounds. So I'm not this big person coming into policing. And my first literally encounter in the academy, and then we'll talk about how I was received throughout the, 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 the 30 something years I was there. But my first encounter in the academy, I'm standing beside, between two different men. You know, they put you in alphabetically. And Brackney, man, you always up front. Um, they never go in reverse order. So I'm standing behind beside two additional recruits, two men. Um, one is a white male and one is a black male. And the white male starts referring to me as bubblegum, calling me young and you're tiny and all these other things. The black male who stands six foot five says to me, hey, you know, um, what are you going to do out in these streets? You probably never did anything in these streets except cross one. I mean, just like real demeaning um, immediately started referring to me as an affirmative action hire, et cetera, right? Um, and that I was tiny and was not going to be able to do the work that these big men were going to do. Because the, prior to that, the rules were you had to be 5'10 and 175 pounds to join the Pittsburgh Police Department, or 5'11. So it was really a tall height. There was height and weight requirements. So immediately would nullify most women being able to be involved in, in policing. So long story short, as we go through this entire training academy process where I'm being ridiculed um, about the way I spoke, the way that I engaged on um, my size, my gender, my race, et cetera, uh, long story short, both of them failed out of the academy. Literally both of them failed out. They didn't even make it out the door. But that was representation of the type of politics that you would face externally if you engaged um, and Pittsburgh police right now is 90% white. The police department is 90% white, um, dealing with populations that are about 26% um, minority and majority, uh, minority in, the, in that community. So there was not a lot of love for minority folk um, internally or externally um, with Pittsburgh police. And they were brutal. Um, I remember lots of violence in the neighborhood that I grew up in. 
I don't recall a time or even when I read anything in the past where there was a very healthy relationship between black people and the police. And you identify as black clearly. I always ask anyone who's black in law enforcement, what made you want to sign up for law enforcement? Oh, this wasn't a choice. <laughs> this was not my this was not my first choice. I'm the only one in my family who is in policing. Um so I have other folks who are military, they're all Marines. Um even though they're retired, because you're not allowed to say ex or former if they're Marines. So if you have any podcasters listening or Marines, don't come looking for a sister, right? No, I got a cousin like that. He he never says former Marine. No. He's a Marine now. They're, my sister, um, my older sister is a Marine. Um, all of my uncles, cousins, all Marines. We had one in the Air Force. And that uncle used to say he was just too pretty to be in the Marine Corps. Uh, so he would fly jets instead. But um, so I didn't. And. Um, what had happened, I was in my senior year at Carnegie Mellon University and um, ran out of money like a lot of black folks do, even on scholarships. You just cannot afford um, education. And currently, I think Carnegie Mellon just raised their rates and it's $85,000 a year to attend. So I'm attending um, in 1980, one of six kids parents, dad basically is the only one who works, mom stays at home and, and then eventually goes into the workforce. But I, I leave due to finances my first, after my first semester senior year. So, you know, if you live in anybody's household um, who looks anything like you, they have two rules. If you stay in at home, you either work or you in school. So my mother would bring home all these applications to civil service jobs. Because a civil service job guaranteed a good benefit, good pensions, good pay. You could retire at the end and still have a, a pension. And my mother would bring home all these applications and I would just fill them out, right? I'm like, mom said, fill them out. I'm filling them out because I'm not going to go to battle with her. And one of the first places that called me was the Pittsburgh Police Department. So I thought mm -hmm. it was like this joke. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, and I'll just go through the applications. I've seen TV. I've seen rookies. I've been in one fight my entire life. One fight. And I prepped for it for a week because I heard they were going to jump me, right? Like, I had never fired a weapon. Um, you know, I, I just wasn't that type of person. I would try and talk you out of a fight before we got into one. Like, I'm holding my sister's backpacks while they fighting, right? I'm the one making sure the coats don't get wet on the ground because your mama going to tear you up if you, them coats is messed up. So... I get to the, the, the academy and I start to slowly find out that, you know, I, I can I can do this, but this ain't no career for me. I mean, like, mm. I'm, this is not what I'm going to do. This is violent stuff out here. Um, and as my friends would, would say, my family was like, like, Shell ain't that one. She, that ain't her life. Um, so I just fell into it. And literally what I thought I was falling into, I realized that I was led into um, in spite of how I had planned out my course, my steps have been ordained differently. So you, you come out the academy, the two gentlemen that had the most whack-ish things to say to you, they fail. You graduate from the academy, and now what? Are you in Pittsburgh working, like a beat, like the way you see on TV, or are you transfer and go somewhere else? I wish, right? I wish. No, I was in Pittsburgh on a beat. And um, 
here's what's so interesting about that. They still would test women to see if they were physically able to um, defend themselves out in the streets. So, and typically black women, women of color, um, they would put on these really difficult beats um, and almost every white female who was in my class was assigned a partner or a vehicle. So I was on a beat. Um, I was on a beat, walking a beat in most of the public housing communities. And they will put you there because, you know, cops ain't welcome in, in the public housing communities. We, you know, never did anything well. So um, a sister just started talking her way through it. Man, I made friends. I'm flirting with brothers. I'm like, they're like making sure I'm mean, taking care of. I'm finding like Big Mama's house so I can, it's cold in Pittsburgh, walking a beat in December and, and things like that. Places where I could, you know, have um, dinner. And I just really got to know the community. And I'm like, you know, this is the same place I grew up. They, they built this narrative about what public housing looks like. It's not what we think, but it's, you know, I'm on this beat. Um, and I basically work a beat and work a wagon for the next nine years of my career um, before I start testing and promoting um, through the ranks. When you say you had no interest and you had only been in one fight and you were holding your sister's backpack, and I quickly got an image of you doing that, and that's hilarious, by the way. But it seems, to be honest with you, that's the type of people I would think we want in law enforcement, not those who tend the stereotype that were bullied. Nobody paid them no attention. I mean, I can't tell you the times in my life where I may or may not have got pulled over and I saw a cop from high school who, who was from high school who was not the person that's in front of me and is being extra aggressive. Were you seeing that as you were coming up through the ranks, that type of attitude? Absolutely. And um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this current moment and how Tyree Nichols happened, particularly with black officers. Yes. What I was finding is a couple of things that were occurring and things we didn't know because we hadn't studied policing, that the most successful individuals in policing are those individuals who have not been in the military, who have not um, had all of these tactical trainings because you don't have to you have to undo a lot of that military training. Um, and, you know, in the military, they they treat you like the enemy is just looked at as this thing. Right. You dehumanize so that you can kill. You can overcome your natural instincts to hurt and to kill. So you're exactly right. We're finding out we want the people who can communicate, who have people skills, who are radically empathetic, who see you as part of who of my humanity as well. And I saw that all the time, like the, the smaller person who was used to particularly male who wanted to prove something was always trying to be extra, either in the way they talk to some individual or talk down to some individual or were quick to use force. I knew if it came to like one-on-one, -on -one, I was always going to be at a disadvantage. So I'm going to just talk to you. And we don't talk all day if we need to talk all day. If that gets us there and we get the same desired outcome, what does it matter? I mean, what does it matter? But you're right. We often allow very broken individuals into a system that's already broken. And then we give them power over the lives of people who um, we meet on their very worst day of their lives. And then we tell them, wield that power against them, that 911 um, put every bit of government behind that. So uh, I agree with you. The persons that I saw 
who are working beside me um, were often extremely aggressive and um, violent. And I remember one of my field training officers said to me when I was talking to a person, if you're not cussing at them, they don't know that you're talking to them. Like that was the mentality. If you're not cussing at them, they don't know. Now, I can drop some bombs now, but that wasn't my language. And it's still not my language interacting with people who are either um, calling 911 for help or, you know, who you're encountering for whatever legal reason that you're encountering them. But there was this hostility towards the people that we were supposedly serving. So you're you're walking to be, you know, you're earning your stripes in a sense like that. And you're, you're navigating, you're, you're finding out what your strengths are. With anybody, I, I like to assume when you come out of college and you get that first job, there are certain people who've been working the same job or they stay afloat for a long time. But you chose to kind of go through up the ranks, like go through an executive part. What was the switch in that for you as an individual? Did you witness something or did you always have the desire to go up? What was it for you? So just the opposite. I thought I'd cruise through my career, you know, get this done, just stay at this level. But um, as I started really studying my profession, literally, I started studying my profession and studying my craft, right? Being very curious about it. And we and I saw that the only way to really change it was to be at a policy level. It, you couldn't be at a level where you were implementing policy. Yes, you could be effective there. But the type of policies and the way they're implemented throughout an organization, you have to move higher up. And so I started taking the test um, and I started working or seeing other individuals across the nation um, who looked who looked like me um, trying to, to make a difference. Um, and I could see from afar that the only way you could do that was higher up into the ranks. So I, I literally started studying. I studied all the civil service rules, all the statutes. I studied the contract better than anybody else because I understood that's how they functioned and Pittsburgh is a very powerful union. So in order to change that organization, you had to be able to work through these contracts. And then I started studying general orders. And then I started doing things like these comparative analysis about who was doing it well at the time and what departments were doing it well. And you often saw that these were departments that were much more community focused versus internally focused. And I just started taking tests and rocking those tests. What was the first executive title? So the first thing I did was moved up to a sergeant. Um, and my chief of police, um, when I when I made sergeant, uh, his executive assistant calls me and says, hey, um, the chief of police wants you to work in his office. So normally when you're newly promoted, what they do is the newly promoted person, they put you on night shift with Tuesday, Wednesdays off. Like you got no sort of seniority. And I didn't even ask what the job was. I just asked, what's the, what's the hours? And they're like, daylight weekends off. And by then I was a, a new mother. My daughter was about 18 months old. I'm like, daylight weekends off? Sister is in. I don't care what this chief is asking me to do. Um, but although the rank was sergeant, having access to the chief of police was the first time I could see how the entire organization ran around budgets, 
policy, but politics. How do you navigate those politics of the region as well as the city? Because the mayor is the person who determines who the chief is. And that's all confirmed by city council. So the, the, the police chief is extremely political position. And I didn't realize that at that lower level. Uh, and then um, a few months later, I took the lieutenant's test. Less than a year later, I scored like one of the highest scores that still exist on the lieutenant's test. Immediately go back out into the streets. Um, work in places like the Hill District. You've heard of the Hill District in Pittsburgh. Everybody heard of the Hill District. <laughs> you, you heard of August Wilson. You heard of the Hill District. You've heard of Hill Street Blues. Hill District. Um, yep. You've heard of um, these very these places. And I started as lieutenant out the Hill District, like one of the roughest communities um, at that time. But, you know, got into there and was like, ah, again, this is where I'm from. You know, how do you have relationships with people? where you can then see them. And then I moved up again very quickly to commander. Um, by the time I'm a commander, I'm probably 36 years old. 30, I mean, I'm really young. Um, overseeing large communities um, and highly specialized teams and training at that point in time. So just slowly moved up. What What is it about? I mean, you even see this in the movies or when you do your research when it comes to military or law enforcement. And a lot of times with other jobs, but sticking to this, when black people or women or a minority, when they get an opportunity, they are always put through the most extreme challenges in that. Now, yeah, you're from that neighborhood. I mean, my neighborhood wasn't pretty, but I wouldn't voluntarily want to go work a beat there, like go walk the streets. Like if you gave me a choice in that sense, I don't know too many people that's going to go towards the, the deepest of fire in that. What is it about that? Is that a process of trying to weed you out because there was no belief in you, because they're thinking you're just a higher off affirmative action? Do you believe in that for yourself, for your personal journey? So here's what I believe. I believe the system's rigged, right? It's just a rigged system. And I say this all the time about any of us who work in these institutions that are embedded in supremacy. That means everyday life, right? Whether you're in a corporate you know, we're talking about the bank failures that are going on right now, educational systems, policing and government, military. These systems are rooted in supremacy. And here's what the, the, the win-win is. If an organization places somebody like me, a minority female in a position, and I do well in that position, they don't consider me as the person doing well. They consider the institution as progressive. You know, that chief was a thought leader. They gave me the opportunity and, you know, she did well. Hooray for us. We have a first and only or another. So the institution never looks bad. If that institution gives me this opportunity as a black woman and I don't live up to the standard, the institution still wins because it says we gave her an opportunity. We gave her a pathway forward. We allowed her to do something that we've never allowed a black female or, you know, um, a person of color, someone who has um, is in the LGBT, you know, QIA plus community. I mean, whatever that is. So it's a it's a it's always a win for them. And then they can discount ever allowing somebody who looks like us 
into that space again because they tried it and it wasn't successful, right? And then you're right. We then take on this ownership. Like that's a pretty heavy burden to carry that if I don't do well in this position, they are not going to consider another woman. They are not going to consider Sony's black. And I know for a fact, my white male counterparts never even have that as a fleeting thought in their mind. Um, so the institutions do test you, but they're testing you so that they get the win no matter what. So there is nothing ever at risk for them. And then they, they do test you. Even as a lieutenant, every day when I was newly promoted as a lieutenant and I'm in the Hill District, a white male officer came in every day. For like two weeks and asked me some obscure legal question or policy question and, and it went on for like two weeks i'm like what the heck is going on here and then it finally hit me dude's testing me to see if i know my stuff or to see if i know my thing so about the second week i'm like i'll tell you what you're out on these streets i'm not gonna always be available you find the answer and bring it back to me how about that bring it back to me question stopped there were things, you know, of that of that nature, um, putting you in positions to fail if they could. The only job I've ever heard of where a black person doesn't have the weight of the community and have to worry about other black people coming at them was probably a janitor at best. Like it, it feels like every single job is like that. When I was a kid and some of my friends may have got a job at the corner store. You know, and the corner store wasn't ran by us. And if somebody was to steal a bag of chips in that corner store, then a friend would lose that job because the assumption was you knew that person. And then not only would that friend lose a job, but that corner store wouldn't hire nobody. They, the, the, even the attitude on that level was, well, we gave you an opportunity. We're not going to no longer hire anyone, even though we're in your community, even though we're taking all your money. We're not going to hire no one because look what happens. And I, it, it feels that way on every single level. And I just I'm glad that you were able to explore that. And you're going through these ranks on your journey and you're, you're elevating because as I'm looking at your background, I'm seeing I don't know if I've ever seen a resume where it's you have the career and the education are like boom, boom, boom. So first of all, I'm looking at this was a busy woman in general. I don't know how you had time to do the wild, magnificent things that you did because you were busy in that between your education and also on top of your actual career. But as we fast forward in your career, you come to a lot of people's attention when you became the police chief of Charlottesville, Virginia, right after the picky torch protest from the Unite the Right protest that we all were seeing. And your hire is viewed as a response to that. But in your journey, it seems your career started off as a response to also affirmative action. From a personal standpoint, because even on this level, you've been in the, in your career field for a couple, for some decades now. Does that mess with you eternally to take that position? Because you've been doing this for a while. You've been doing the work, but the world is looking like, oh, this, this, they're going to go hire a black person to try to, you know, put Band-Aid over their BS or whatever. How does that resonate with you on a personal level? And so, and it still is in that space. Like, so they just replaced me with a white male chief and I'll get to your story or get to the point. So they just replaced me with a white male, white male chief who is saying some of the, and doing some of the exact same things that I did. 
And during his hiring process, he actually came up to me and said, I've studied your work. I've studied your work. And he's interviewing for the job um, and tells me he's a fan of my work. Right. He's trying to take my job. He says what I say, literally. And they're hailing him as this white savior. And this is what happens. You know what? Now that he's here, um, that, you know, my affirmative action, literally, um, I was called an affirmative action quota hire turn desk jockey. Literally is what somebody tweeted to me. Um, my hire was and that I had taken the job of more qualified white men um, than than myself. Right. And you're right. This point, I have a doctorate. I've been in policing at that point, 30 something years. I was a former chief of police at George Washington University. I'm a graduate of the FBI National Academy. I'm a graduate of the Secret Service Academy. I've been the bomb. Oh, yeah, you here. Like my is tight. Right. My stuff is tight. Um, and so when I come to the position for Charlottesville, my whole idea is this. One, they just elected their first black mayor who's female, who came out of the activist community. So I'm like, we got some traction here, right? There is something we could do. And Jefferson probably going to roll over in his grave. But you've got these two black women who, if we get this right, if we do this right, we can tear down these institutions of supremacy, starting with Jefferson and slavery and Monticello and policing. And if we do it here, how might it move out concentrically throughout the nation, particularly since as soon as you say unite the right, everybody's thinking Charlottesville, everyone's thinking Tiki Torches, everyone's thinking Heather Heyer, cars ramming through, Confederate flags, police standing by watching folks. Very fine like people. Get, right, fine people on both sides. And they're not only watching this locally and nationally, internationally, they're watching what's going on here. So for the first time, there's an opportunity for authentic dismantling and changing of a policing um, institution. So I was okay with the quote unquote, you know, she she's a, a DEI hire, she's an affirmative action hire. That's cool. You 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 work that angle um, while we work this system. And I was able through um, being able to sit with a mayor, um, you know, former mayor Nakia Walker, who was not a fan of me. Like when she said uh, my hire, she said, if we have to have policing in this community and if we have to have a police chief, I'm going to bet on her. Like. Because she didn't think and she's very much a, you know, no jails nor graves kind of person. Like we don't need graves for our folks and we don't need jails. Where's that that intermediary? And um, through that process, the work that the two of us did, we actually became extremely effective and close um, because we were vision and value aligned around the work. So just for those who don't know before that position was assigned to you, when that Unite the Right rally was happening, your position was what at that time? Um, during the Unite the Right rally, I was actually the chief of police at George Washington University. I had retired from the city of Pittsburgh um, as the, the the commander of major crimes. At that point, I was overseeing then, and then it moved to 
DC because my husband's a professor and we have been doing the the long distance thing. So, you know, I need to get booed up. Um, I need to be, I need to be where my husband was. Um, and so I was the chief there before I moved down there. So I was in an academic space practicing policing um, very differently than municipal policing from Pittsburgh. And so how does that kind of happen? Do you just get a call? You already have relationships. How does that happen for you? How does a black woman from the (laughs) North go down to Charlottesville in the South after the Unite the Right rally where people are are literally rioting because they want to take down the statutes, Confederate statutes, which is what this was all about. Yeah. And I just, if I can just pause, and I think you and I can probably relate to this. Being so far north, I, I didn't know until I came to school in D.C., being closer to Virginia, that there were Confederate statues. Like, I, I really had never experienced that until I went to college. And, you know, you go down to Virginia and I start doing traveling in the South. And I'm like, wait a minute, is that a Confederate statue? But they lost. Like, I, I really didn't know. Because up north, there's a different type of racism. But one of the racism that I'm probably not experiencing, it's seeing a Robert E. Lee school or seeing a Robert E. Lee statue or any Confederate statue that's that's being praised. And I, I was that. So that was always very confusing for me when I first came towards the DMV area and being closer to the South living. And so you're right. They're having this protest rally over Robert E. Lee statue being taken down. You're coming from the north, way up north, not just north, way up north. That's majority of your experience. And so you get this call and this. Dear Lord. So I don't have any relationships, right? And you think I would have known better. You really do think I would have known better because my husband's from Jackson, Mississippi. And you're right. Southern kind of racism and Northern racism are very different things. I mean, very different things. Southern racism is like, they serve it to you on a platter like Sunday, right? At the the Golden Corral. And the North- Literally at the Golden Corral. Literally. (laughs) Northern racism is, you know, the the red lobster after church kind of racism, right? That's a little different Denny's. kind of, it's a little subtle, you know, you might get a little glance, you know, here and there, like a side eye, but it's a very different thing. So what happens is I'm in D.C. When the Unite the Right rally occurs, again, I, when I tell you my steps have been ordered, they have nothing to do with what a sister is doing in life. We're in Barbados when the Unite the Right rally happens. Now you're thinking, yeah, y'all hanging out with Riri. No, she had not invited us. We weren't there for that. But my husband's area of expertise is slavery and lynchings. Like that's the work he does. Like our household is deep. You don't want coffee in this household some days. But so we're in Barbados. And, you know, of course, we're seeing some of the sights, right? Of course we are. But my husband has us literally doing these tours of the sugar plantations where slavery was the most violent Um, type of slavery where people were coming in from Africa to Barbados to the Caribbean. So we're going through and visiting these grave sites, these sugar plantations where slavery was, and we're, we're, we're seeing these things that were occurring and it was just very heavy. We get back to, um, you know, the resort where we're staying and we see on CNN, the Unite the Right rallies there is happening. I mean, it's just everywhere. It's just blown up. And my husband turns to me and says, I wish we were there. I would be protesting. And I called him a word. I'm like, bro, basically you six, two, you know, 
brown-skinned brother from Jackson, built like a football player. Ain't nobody singing Dr. Nothing when you walking through Charlottesville. They singing something else. I'm wishing you there at all. Sorry. I'm sorry. You know, that you just gonna take that elbow. Um, so we're there. And the job mm-hmm. comes open literally in January of 2018. And I just casually say to my husband, oh, the job is open in Charlottesville. Wouldn't that be something? And we just kind of let it go. I don't apply for it. I mean, like we live in a halcyon life in D.C. Like we're like empty nesters, right? Professor, chief, I'm working in Froggy Bottom. You can hit stands. You know, Chopper like, City. Oh, stands where everybody know your name. The Black Cheers. Yeah, go ahead. Right, right, right. <laughs> you can hit Park. I mean, like, you know, you can have as much flavor as you want, you know, in D.C. And um, so we just kind of let it go. Nothing happens. Apparently, the, it closes. And then it comes up on my feet again in March, late March of 2018, that they've reopened this position for the chief of Charlottesville. And I'm like, what? I'm like, babe, you said you want to, his first book is published out of UVA. Let's just, you know, you got friends there. Let's just put it in and see where it goes. And next thing I know, I'm in this intense interview process um, out of 168 candidates for the position. um, And then I'm selected. So the only thing I can say is my steps were ordained and I was led here because this would not have been a conscious choice to come sit in the seat of the Confederacy, much like you said, I didn't understand the significances of Jefferson Davis Highway. If you from Ale- hanging out in Alexandria, Jeff Davison Highway, like these are Confederate leaders. I didn't understand that they have the Stonewall Jackson Conference Center here, right? That they have the Confederate museums here in, in um, Virginia. I just didn't understand it. I'm like, we were living in the Northern Virginia area, which is very different feel than when you hit below, you start hitting places like I had never heard of before, like these green counties and Louisa counties, uh, where these folks are not playing when it comes to, and they're fighting over these statutes coming down. They're fighting over the changing of the names of schools. They have the Jefferson um, birthday as an actual holiday in Charlottesville, not President's Day, Jefferson's birthday. They're fighting over his legacy that, you know, he was in a consensual relationship with with Sally Hemings, his daughter's 14-year-old mate, right? Like, it's this weird kind of thing. And then I find myself um, in a space where I am the first woman and, you know, I'm a Black woman that takes over as this chief of police position after a very rigorous and robust um, screening process. And I mean, and that's a hell of a jump because you had every light on you, like every eye is on you, social media, people are looking you up and everything, like the the radar is, is on you. And you're there for a few years and then the termination comes. Yes. How does that happen? <laughs> Only the Lord knows at this point how that happens. Um, so I'm there for a few years and I am doing exactly what I was hired to do, that there were allegations of police misconduct, disproportionate minority policing stops, stop and frisk was through the roof. 
internal affairs complaints were not being taken seriously. Um, there was corruption, um, use of force um, against minority populations, particularly black men, was at these all-time levels of high. Um, training was substandard. And um, there's this pain, particularly put on a spot, like you said, both locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally on Charlottesville Police Department for their failures to act during this time of the United Right Rally. And I've got six weeks to prepare for the marking of the events of the first one. Jason Kessler, who organized the first one, is in a petition and fight to have his second Unite the Right rally there. Um, and simultaneously in D.C., we're in court hearings over the militia not being able to come back in to Charlottesville, who had showed up the year before. We're also preparing for the trial of James um, Alex Fields, who drove the car through um, and hit Heather Heyer. Feelings and emotions are raw. People are on like high alert. Um, and I've got six weeks from the time I'm hired till the next August 12th. And every spotlight you are exactly was on me. And so I do all of the things in response to that. I change the policies. I reorganize everything. I bring in the best training from the Anti-Defamation League. I start terminating people. Um, I redo the internal affairs system. I literally bring innovative practices that are not um, ever seen and still aren't across the majority of the police departments in this nation. And um, everything is going well in terms of um, hiring, retention, filtering people out. I've changed the hiring and recruitment practices. Like I'm now recruiting at the IHOP or at churches in the parking lots on Sundays or at daycare centers where people need good jobs versus these recruitment fairs. Like I'm doing the things that we do so that the department reflects the community. And then I make a fatal error. Um, I get a complaint about one of our officers and I start looking into the complaint and uncover some of the most corrupt, vile behaviors occurring within the police department that I was being shielded from because they had created their own little cabals, if you if you would, or their own little cells of behavior. Start that and I make the fatal mistake of firing six white male officers, disbanding the SWAT team, disbanding the drug enforcement teams, very similar to the Scorpio, or the Scorpion team that they had in Memphis. I disband all of those. I had removed the school resource officers from our schools two years earlier. Like all of the things that we would have wanted to do under reform. Um, so once that happens and I start firing them, the next thing you know, I'm a target of the union, um, of the city council member, of white progressives, of, um, you know, my city administration. Um, and including some of my own officers, including my second in command. You know, it's when I hear that, I think about, like you said, I can't help but think about the Scorpion unit in that. And I understand sarcasm. So when you say you made the fatal mistake, you know, I, I get that in that sense, because you had to have known that once this information was being revealed to you, there was going to be some consequences coming. I remember some time ago, I think she was in charge of the education department in DC. And I think she told, she said she told the mayor, which was Adrian Fenty at the time. She said, Hey, listen, if you hire me, you probably won't get reelected because she was going to come in there and create a storm. 
And so you had to have known once you know what you know, like this is going to have a consequence, you know, in that some people would have easily still continued on about their day because with the work that you was doing, you could have used that resume that you was doing as a shield and said, I'm doing all of these things. What was that moment inside you that said, I still have to do this, even though, you know, at that time, nobody probably would have knew they would have did a good covering up on it. It could have kind of continued. Was that a conversation you had to have at home? Was that something that was instant? What was that process like for you? So a couple of things. So in my career, I started writing the um, lesson plans and programs for the city of Pittsburgh as early back as 1997 on cultural competency, but also on ethics, um, ethical decision making. What does that look like? Um, And so part of what I have been practicing my entire career was just getting ready for these kind of moments. And I used to teach um, that, you know, when you're in a, a firefight, you fire back, right? If you're in a shootout, you just automatically, you do what you're trained to do, right? There's a response there. But when you're looking down this 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 road and you can see that light coming at you, and it's not the, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, it's actually the train coming at you, and you still have to make those same decisions, um, what do you do? Like, what do you do? Those are the more difficult decisions that take single heroic courage to do. And when I first started realizing that something was going to happen, Part of what um, I was investigating, the very first video um, that was sent to me from one of my officers who were doing all their recordings on their city issued phones. Boo, they had even did it on their like personal phones. These are the city issued phones that they were doing. And at the end of the video, the officer says, I can't wait to get back to the hood so we can do hood gangster fish. And at that moment, I realized what was I was going to continue to uncover, right? Because he had taken the video of himself and not only spread it throughout his team, but it sent it to his ex-wife, um, you know, because he used to like to send stuff out as well. So at that moment, I knew there was going to be a lot that I was going to uncover, that I was going to uncover particular things around racism. Um, if you're that comfortable on the city phones, etc. The moment I knew I couldn't stop is when I uncovered text messages that, um, that I mean, it, and it's solidified. I already knew what I would be doing. You know, terminating had always been something I had been doing in that department. It terminated more officers than had ever occurred in the history of the department. Um, two text messages. One was they had named in this private text circle two officers that they said they needed to kill because they thought they were snitching. Um and going along with my programs. They named them by name and just said, let's just take them out. Let's just take them out. Um, and if you're that emboldened to talk about killing your coworkers, you know, there isn't probably anything they haven't done out in the streets. And I'm like, we're going to just have to go down this one. And where it lands, it lands. Folks got to go to jail. I've already had officers arrested, which is something they had. They were holding against me. I had officers arrested for excessive force. They were charged with excessive force prior to these cases. So they were already not happy with me um, doing that and had terminated other white male officers for excessive force. The second thing is, so they're targeting each other. Another text message we discover is about me and the command staff that they need to just kill me and let God sort it out. Again, if you're that emboldened to do that, I can only imagine what's going on out in the streets where you don't think there's any accountability, et cetera. So um, the only conversation I had to my, with my husband is, listen, this is going to get ugly and it may even get dangerous. 
but we don't have any choice. Like we don't have any choice. And you know, that that brother was he's like, I got you. Um, now we ain't fools. We started cameras all over our house, alarms all over our home, changing our driving patterns, putting pictures up in our house of what officers who were threatening to kill me look like so he would never open the door, checking our garage, looking underneath our cars when we leave work. I started unholstering my gun every day as I walked out um, of the police station, checking my car to make sure that there was nothing underneath my car. You see, my doors hadn't been altered. Um, because if they were that emboldened, they knew that I was going to uncover what I was going to uncover. Why wouldn't they get rid of me and stop the process? I, I always find it, you know, a pattern. Maybe it's me and I could be checked for that or corrected. But there was such a there's always such a big noise when someone like you comes in. Like I say, on the surface, it's let's find someone. Let's put them in this position. But the dismissal of them is often quiet. It's the complete opposite. You, you, unless you're like searching for it or you just happen to be on CNN and it comes across the little tagline, then it's like it's there. So when you got terminated, that noise was nowhere near on the level it was when they brought you in. But you didn't you decided to not go out like that and you filed a lawsuit, you know, in that. Take us through that journey for a quick second, if you could. Yeah, I, I decided to file a lawsuit for um, a variety of reasons. Um, one, you know, fool me once, shame on, on, on you, fool me twice, shame on me. When I started in Charlottesville, just because I had been in policing so long and wasn't sure what the, the, the landscape was, I had started recording my city manager every meeting we had. Charlottesville is a one party, Virginia is a one party consent state. So that's a free legal advice y'all get. Um, you can, you can record anybody. It's a one party consent state. And as long as you consent to record yourself, hey, you're there. But I have been recording my city manager. Um, he was a white male brought in from Louisiana, from Baton Rouge. And I was suspect. Like, I'm already, this place is already, I'm getting a feel for it. I'm I'm realizing what's going on. So I was recording him. I was recording my, um, literally, um, interactions I was having with certain council members who were very racist and were really just disrespectful to me. I was recording the the city attorney anytime she and I talked. I'm like, don't trust you, boo. Um, just don't. So I literally was recording um, individuals. And then, you know, I was taking copious notes on everything as well, just because I just didn't trust how Charlottesville was was showing itself. Um, throughout the course and the, and the, and the difficulties that, that came with it. Um, and the reason I filed the lawsuit is up until August 26th of 2021, there are no issues with my performance. I'm lauded as doing these things well. I'm doing these things. Um, everything is going well. And then next thing I know, four days later, five days later, I'm told that there needs to be a change in leadership. Um, and I find out, like, I'm like, why? Well, we just need to go in a different direction. I'm like, so what direction do we head in? Like, if we're going towards the anti-homophobic, anti-misogynistic, anti-racism, anti-supremacy, you know, we're doing these things, then you could, uh, you're really telling me you're going back. And then I found out that they had been having secret meetings all along um, since I started the termination of the SWAT team to get rid of me. Council members were meeting with the city. My second in charge, they were meeting with him. They were meeting with a black male who was the head of the civilian review board 
and the Police Benevolence Association, which is the union, to get rid of me. Like, let that resonate. Um, but, you know, like I always say, even, you know, um, when 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 somebody tells, ask Nat Turner, somebody told, it wasn't somebody that looked like them, it's somebody who looked like us, right? So you've always got to have somebody um, who's from the oppressed, who supports what the oppressors are doing so they can benefit it. So, and, you know, I started saying, listen, if I'm not doing anything wrong, I don't have a single poor evaluation and you terminate me without cause, which means you have to pay me out saying, you know, that I didn't do anything wrong. Because if they're going to terminate a sister for cause, you know if they could have terminated me for some reason. This, this, I had lost my job. But they terminated me without cause um, and said, you know, we're just not going to keep your contract in place. Um, I'm like, I've had enough of this, right? White supremacy wins way too often and I'm exhausted with it. So we've had to file um, a lawsuit for retaliation, discrimination, um, et cetera. And we're still fighting that lawsuit um, because after 12 counts that we supported with the 12 counts, 300 pages of filings, um, the 85-year-old white male federal judge here said he dismissed all 12 of my counts. So we've had to go to appeal. Let that resonate. All 12 of my counts. He said, I don't have a case. I was an at-will employee. Regardless of what they did to you, you're an at-will employee. So we're literally, as yesterday, we were um, in our appeals process, literally arguing appeals yesterday. That is a fight that is definitely courageous. And I can only imagine or possibly imagine the amount of energy it's taking to do that because you are already exhausted through your journey and then you have to take it up a notch. But I definitely understand the way you explain why the need for it. And that's what makes, I think, people like you, you know, unique in that. But you also have all this experience and all this knowledge for all these years of working in it. And so you've decided, besides the lawsuit itself, to kind of advocate for more and do more in the community of that. Can you take us through that? Yes, actually. So so now I'm I'm actually working in academia. Um, I'm a distinguished visiting professor at George Mason University. I've also had a fellowship um, with Carnegie Mellon University where I teach. And I'm thinking, where can I influence? And if I can't do it in the system in the same way that I used to do it, right, then you change the minds of people who are in those communities. You impact as many of those individuals and you expose the inside of the system to them. So the one course I teach is called The Shading of Democracy, The Influence of Race on Policy and Politics. And I teach that one. And I'm teaching a course on law and popular culture. And in the fall, I'm teaching a course called Policing Black Bodies, um, just how we do that um, as well. Um, advocacy, I literally now am traveling um, all over and and having panel discussions and keynotes. Um, I just returned uh, last, just at the end of February, so two weeks ago, I gave the keynote at Camp David um, for Black History Month on how you change systems and um, those kinds of things, just making my, at least if I can elevate and activate my voice um, in a different way, that might be it because currently um, there isn't a department that will hire me. Literally, there's no department that will hire me. Um, 
And the majority of them say this, we don't want pushback from the unions. We don't want pushback from the unions about the type of work that you would do and the changes that you would make. Um, so I have to do it a different way. And um, as old folks used to say, there's more than one way to skin a cat. So don't have PETA coming after me. I am not skinning any cats, right? But that's an old folks saying. Um, so, um, my work is different. Um, I'm writing a book, writing my first book. Um, it's called The Bruising of America, When Black, White, and Blue Collide, about all of these things, but also um, the last two chapters on how do we change these systems? How do we dismantle systems um, of supremacy and not reimagine them, but imagine justice for the first time, um, particularly in our communities? So I'm, I'm taking a different approach to it than I've probably ever taken before. Yeah, I saw that. And before we go, let me just ask just a few more because there's been events happening. Some of them you've mentioned. And I advocate all the time on this show and on my own personal pages how we need expert voices because I get so exhausted by this. Everyone has a take and no one in the experience and no one wants to Google or even read things. So now that I have the privilege of having someone like you in front of me, let me just ask you your perspective on some of these things. And let's get into the Tyree Nichols real quick with the Scorpion unit. Now, you were at your position not that long before you uncovered that there was a whole cabal, as you stated, that was existence. From what you know, from your information and the knowledge that you have, how does a unit like Scorpion exist for as long as it has, you know, under the radar, is it possible? Because I get that the chief of police has a lot going on because you mentioned that there's a politic thing involved. There's so many things on their plate. But is it actually possible for a unit like that to exist and you don't necessarily know they exist until they actually kill somebody on camera? So I'm going to say no. Let me tell you why I'm going to say no. Um you know, just like in football, again, Steelers fan, right? We fire coaches. We don't typically yes, fire do. a quarterback. We don't typically fire the, the, the you know, the, the, the special teams person. We fire coaches at all levels. The coaches need to know what's going on in their organization. So there's, there's three phases to this. When I first arrived in Charlottesville, I'm, again, studying and knowing your profession Everything I know about policing says corruption is going to occur in these small insular specialty units. That's where they always occur. Because, as I used to say, you know, for my boys in the hood, they they specialists, but they think they special at the same time, too. Right. You know, so that's always been a problem. They don't rotate people in and out. They don't rotate supervisors in and out. And there's no real accountability system. So disbanding the SWAT team was the fourth thing I had done. And I disbanded them in um, like July of 2021, right? I got there in June of 2018. First thing I did in, in like September, as soon as we got through the Unite the Right rally um, event of the 2nd of 2018, I disbanded what we had. It was called a specialty response unit, like our specialty tactical, some specialty unit. And I, when I asked them what was the purpose of it, it was, would we do things at the chief's discretion? 
I'm like, mm, well, if you got all this specialty training, we'll just put you throughout the troops and then you can figure them out that way. Right. So I disband that first. Decentralized that was the first thing I did. The second thing I did, we had what was called um, the drug enforcement team, like which is these, you know, you keep hearing about these specialty drug enforcement teams. They're often with the DEA and they get with the U.S. Marshals. I disband that within the first year as well. So I got rid of that. Then I pulled the school resource officers out of the schools right after that. So I'm now in this. When I disband the SWAT team, right, we already know there's so much corruption going on that they're likely going to occur in those things. Let's go back to the Scorpion unit. Unfortunately, the Scorpion unit was designed and created by Chief Davis, and she modeled it after the Red Dog team in Atlanta. Now, you have to ask, why did she do that? So either it was welcomed and had some success, or community, she's under pressure to do something, right, about crime and what violence. And that's where we have to start thinking about what kind of pressures internally from government, the, the mayor or the, the city manager and public, do we put on these police chiefs to do something? And they don't know what to do, right? They're trying to walk this tightrope. And so she creates this unit where they're all very young officers. She's only been there a few years. So the likelihood she's picking the right ones because she doesn't know them, she doesn't know the internal politics, the concept, even the name Scorpion, like why would you name a unit after this deadly animal um, or insect? But anyway, so if you know policing and you know your profession, you know where that where your vulnerabilities lie. And to even create a team like that um, would cause you to pause. It should cause you to pause, um, particularly since it goes against every mandate of the 21st century policing that Obama put into place um, with his task force. And uh, Chief Davis, one, I have to qualify, is a friend. There is a group of black female chiefs who all know each other, right? We all have our texts together. We're all in this struggle together. So known Chief Davis from her days in Durham, her days in Atlanta, when she was the president of Noble, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. So um, I have to acknowledge that so people don't think I'm, I'm tilted. But uh, so I can understand the tensions, but you know what's going on. You, there's no way you can get those kinds of results that they were touting just a, a month prior about how effective they are and not know that something is not going well. You, you can't help but know that. Um, so there has to be some ownership at the highest levels when it comes to how they came in. And, you know, um, there are a lot of folks that come up with these viper teams you know, um, like it's the crazy, it's, you know, that where they do this hotspot, aggressive policing kind of stuff. And you have to start worrying about, um, you know, why we think they're needed and why particularly are they always going to be in black community under the guise of hotspot policing? One of the age old arguments that I can't believe we're still having, because I, I saw it online just not too long ago, is the appearance of black people 
and how somehow our appearance can prevent us from being hurt. And you keep hearing the counter argument when we die, get murdered by law enforcement is, you know, if you just comply, you just do what they say. You know, if you wear your hair a certain type of way, if you wear your pants a certain type of way, it's, you're going to draw this attention. You being on that side for a number of years, is there some truth to that that you see? No, I mean, no. And, and the reason is we have to finally acknowledge it, right? Like, here's what the argument is. The argument about the institution always winning, right? When we're black, it's comply first, complain later, right? Let's just talk January 6th with Ashley Babbitt. You don't hear anybody talking about comply first and complain later with her. She was just an innocent patriot who was killed by a black police officer who told her to stop coming through that window before he shot her in the halls of Congress. So I haven't heard a single person with that same language of comply first, complain later. But let's just take it one step further. If you are sitting on your couch in your own bedroom or in your own house eating ice cream and somebody mistakes their apartment like they did with Gene Botham and they come into his apartment and shoot him, how is he supposed to comply? How is Breonna Taylor supposed to comply? How is Ahmaud Aubrey supposed to comply? They don't have the opportunity to comply, right? Let's just even take it one step further with George Floyd and Tyree Nichols. Tyree is complying, contrary to what they're saying. He's being pulled out of the car and he's low voice saying, you're doing something extra. I'm on the ground. My hands are behind my back. And you're beating me. Like, what does, when does it start with the comply first, comply later? And as long as we teach from day one these tricks around auditory witnesses where I'm saying, quit resisting, put your hands behind your back, like I'm creating a narrative, we start to think that people aren't complying. If you didn't see the video of Tyree Nichols, you would assume he wasn't on the ground and his hands weren't. If you didn't see the, the video of George Floyd with someone's knee on his neck for nearly nine minutes, you would think he wasn't complying. He has no choice but to comply. He's chest down on concrete. He ain't going nowhere. So I think it's just, um, there's again, the system is rigged to win. The system is rigged to win. People still think Tyree Nichols shouldn't have ran. You get in your butt beat, you're getting jumped. Let's be honest. By people you don't know, they're all in dark clothing, they're all dressed a certain way, and you getting beat, and you're like, this ain't gonna end well. I'm gonna take my chances. I'm gonna take my chances and ask for forgiveness, you know, versus permission. I'm gonna take my chances. And we know the story. We know over and over how this turns out for us. We know. And particularly when you say, how do you walk Dylan Roof out? How do you walk Dylan Roof out? How you give him McDonald's. Yeah. How do you walk him out? Not that I'm advocating you kill folk, but how do you walk him out? Depends on who you are and how you encounter the system. Um, and we know they lie with body worn camera, right? Folks are running unarmed. Charleston, you get, or you get shot in the back. They plant guns on you. Like, Sandra Bland, she's complying over and over and over again, but because you don't want her 
to you know use her phone or light her cigarette and there's no law against it um yeah yeah and i i always feel like i go back to i don't remember seeing any photos or images of emmett till with braids and baggy jeans so none of that kind of stuff or dress as the stereotypical hood of that era. I don't remember any of that kind of stuff playing a part on that, and it it never seems to. I I just have two more, and I have to ask you your perspective. The DC bill, the Revised Criminal Code Act, and Biden had stated, I'm paraphrasing, that he is going to vote inside with the Republicans as far as not to allow that bill to happen in D.C. where it's for reduce, um, rob, you know, re- reduce sentences for carjackings, robberies, and eliminate some mandatory minimum sentences, right? As, as these old laws are starting to be challenged, these ones has been around for decades now, that science and all of the theorists have stated, hey, listen, <laughs> you might have went into with the best intentions, but we've discovered that only a specific group is suffering from it. And it, it's, it's being delayed. It's being told to them over and over and over again. What is the resistance to that? Is it, I mean, I, what is it about, I mean, Trump was an expert at it, but what is it about politicians not just simply saying, oh, yo, this was wrong and let's fix it? So... You know, I'm going to quote the great philosopher, Joanne Reed, (laughs) where she says, pain is the purpose, right? Inflicting pain is the purpose. And Trump just recently said when he makes some announcement, I'm your retribution. Let that resonate with one of his statements or speeches. And I'm your retribution. The reason you want to keep these things in place, it's it's a way to control, right? And and here's what I, I say about policing and these laws and the reason legislators are comfortable with it. And it's disappointing that Biden is comfortable with it. Biden should have learned his lesson from the Uniform Crime Bill in 1994 that got us the three strikes. It got us a very weakened DOJ ability to investigate police departments, et cetera. But the, 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 the pain is the purpose. And I can control you by through fear, violence, and intimidation is the whole premise. And we know who the targets of that are, right? We know who the targets of that are. They have not... Let's say, have they gone after, say, Philadelphia, where they the prosecutors have rolled back and said, we are doing things differently here, right? They're going after a place where you can control black bodies. An example of that is, let's use Jackson, Mississippi. I don't know if you paid attention, but their legislator just came up with basically an entire new court system in Jackson, Hines County that says it's an all-white judges, all-white magistrates, all-white public defenders, all-white prosecutors to take the quote-unquote caseload off of the Jackson, you know, Hines County District Attorney's Office, right? So he, they just did that. The key is you got to control Black bodies through fear and intimidation. 
And that's the way to do it. And when it's coming at the highest levels, where Biden, who we think is this liberal person who's actually just a centrist, if he supports it, if he says we need to back the blue, he's virtual signaling too as part of his run for 2024. And we do that on the bodies of black folks every single day. But the thing you have to worry about is not only just uh, overturning that, this is also going to, they're looking at overturning the entire Criminal Justice Reform Act that they put in in 2022, um, where you have mandates around policing, no chokeholds, the no-knock warrants. So they're going after piece one and piece two. So how is Biden going to respond to that? That says, we want tougher ones for criminal, but less control for police who commit some of the same kind of violent acts towards our communities. It is extremely disheartening. Um, and another thing that's extremely disheartening, particularly around Biden, he just appointed a new director of the cops division, the community-oriented policing services out of D.C., where they put average about six $600 million a year into hiring police and training. And I think Biden just gave him 250 more. He just appointed as a director, a white male chief who used to be the chief in Providence, Rhode Island, who sits on the executive board of the national FOP. What have you just said about changing the dynamics of policing if that's who you put into place? So I think... Um, if you don't like how, how D.C. is doing it, they don't come in and do that. They don't change any other state. The reason they can't is because they can do it in D.C. because it's not a state. And for those who don't know, can you just quickly explain FOP, what that is real quick? That's the Fraternal Order of Police. So the Fraternal Order of Police represents about 350,000 of the more than 800,000 individuals who are in policing. So that is their they're not a union, quote unquote. But everybody knows fraternal order police is code word for union. Um, and the first FOP, fraternal order police, started in the city of Pittsburgh. And they modeled it after the steel mills and their unions, which were very strong unions. And they then advocated for working conditions, et cetera. I got, I got one final question. I, you know, you've been very candid and very honest about this, but... You know, through your experience and your unique experience, I, I have to ask before we close out, what has been more challenging for you on this journey? Has it been for you being black or you being a woman? So I used to say that in policing, they were chauvinistic first and then racist second. Um, I'm just a bogo for them. Great. So they get two for one. Um, it's for me, I don't. I, I can't really separate those, right? Like I can't, they are so part of who I am and um, how I speak. But let me tell you what I'm probably thinking about it. I think in policing particularly, which is often 80% white male, the challenge has been is that the fact that I'm multi-ethnic because that is more of an affront that there was this race mixing going on. Um, than the fact that I was born a woman, right? There's something about the intentionality of my parents getting together that is extremely offensive. Um, 
And I can't even just leave it there. And I hope I, you know, this probably gets some like, oh, dear folks. But we in our community have to deal with it, too, because there's these issues around colorism that we still buy into, you know, because I can be, you know, um, racially ambiguous. I, I slide down that scale um, when you're like, oh, what is, you know, my first chapter of the book is called What Is You? Because I was asked, what is you so often growing up? Um, around my ethnicity um, in today's society where we are the most diverse and multi-ethnic um, society that has ever existed in the world. It's a little um, easier, but, you know, there are the vestiges of hostility about um, interracial couples and being light-skinned and being, you know, a house Negro versus a field Negro stuff still carries with us. Colorism still carries with us. Um and, you know, because I've had pushback from my own community about being fair and quote unquote good hair. And we can all show Chris Rock's good hair, uh, you know, movie later. But the, 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 I think the race has been more difficult because they have, the affirmative action is almost always associated with race versus gender. Right. We always think of it as lowering the qualities of rape and our race and then what I often do to dissuade people when they think about privilege and about skin color and colorism. Uh, when we came to these United States, we weren't my skin color. Although my parents legitimately got together, my tone of skin is what I refer to as the color of rape. This is what happened when women were raped over and over again. Um, so being in the house, being raped um, was a position you thought might benefit us. The reason that we eventually got to that is because someone didn't value um, our humanity and our bodies um, as black folks or as women. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. This has been the most informative episode that I've had in a very long time. And I always say to first time guests, please take the invitation as a rotating door. We would like for you to come back, especially when certain laws are being passed or events happen. We need speakers like you to be on our show if we if you could please and or if there's any time that you feel that we need to be on notice please feel free to reach out to us so you can come back and say hey listen we need to have a conversation about this even if it's for a certain amount of minutes you need to know this and so we appreciate you for coming on the show thank you very much dr michelle bragney really appreciate you for coming on and i'm i'm so much more a better person for pronouncing your name correctly and for knowing information that i know you know, in this. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it. That's been an episode of History of Being Black. I know my blackness has been elevated. Dr. Bradney has elevated. I, I, I don't even want to try to claim we elevated your blackness because we were trying to get to your level. But thank you very much for coming to the show. As usual, you can catch all of our episodes on Apple Music, Spotify, and everywhere where podcasts really are. You can also follow us on our IG at History of Being Black and me and O'Lion Media. You can also follow me on all social medias at Hall Society. Be blessed for successful. We'll talk to you soon. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcasts. 
Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O'Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean O'Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O'Line Media production.